it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Raj Gopalan, 
Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg. Explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG Guys. Hi folks, and welcome to this episode of the CPG Guys podcast, where we explore the omni-channel digital journey, brands and retailers, of course. I'm your co-host, Shri, and I'm joined by my dear friend and now a partner of the CPG Guys, Mr. Brian Gildenberg, who is also, of course, very much the host of the Gildenberg Omni Comment. He's got the podcast Fast Forward, CPG Guys, as well as works with Retail City, and he just came off a conference at the time of this recording, and I will ask him to give a 60-second summary of that conference. I also want to thank all of you for helping us cross the 20k followers mark on LinkedIn. I know that's significant on LinkedIn, so can't say thank you enough times on behalf of the CPG guys. And now, Mr. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Shri. It's good to, good to see you, man. How you been? Can't complain. The rain has stopped here finally after three months in Cal- Southern California, and I can see people out and about with a little bit of sun sneaking in every now and then. Brian, you at the time of this recording, you just came back from a Retail Cities conference. Take 60 seconds and tell us what that was all about. Yeah, it was uh, through Retail Cities, which is the retail research firm I help, uh, I help lead in North America. And uh, we called it Retail Media, the first word problem. Um, and this was sort of a hypothesis that if you go back five years ago, uh, retail media was largely being managed by you know, the retail account teams at the retailer, with the exception of Amazon, which is kind of its own ecosystem. Um, but over the last few years, as the retailers have doubled down and as the industry has changed, uh, it's become a very media-centric conversation, and to some degree, and we'll talk about this a little bit today, Vince, I'm curious for your point of view on this as we go through, has lost some of the thread of the fact that, you know, retail media is, it's associated with retailers, right? Like, there's stuff you can do in retail media that you can't do in regular digital advertising or regular TV. So we spent a lot of the day really trying to break that down, and also really just trying to act as a piece of, like, you know, trying to create people to be pieces of human translation software, if you will between the mindset of the media ecosystem and the measures of success in the jargon and the mindset of a commerce ecosystem, the people that are actually responsible for trying to grow the retail business. Because I, I know from most of the experience that most of our clients have had, trying to bridge that gap is a, uh, is a formidable exercise, um, just given the uh, differing points of view that people have. So it was a, it was a good event. We had some, uh, some good guests. was joined by our third CPG guy, Mr. Peter Bond, um, in addition to... Uh, Friend of the uh, the Fresh Four, uh, Andrea Lay, and some other uh, good folks as well. So, good session. Thank you for that, Brian. And before we get to our guests, let me remind our audience to visit cpgguys.com on a web browser where you can find links to our podcast on all the major podcast platforms. And if you're not already doing so, do follow us on LinkedIn where we publish new content each and every day of the week, even on the weekends. That's seven days a week, some days even two pieces of content. Subscribe to the other podcasts in our collective, including the FMCG Guys, CPG Scoop, and the newest edition. Mr. Brian here's CPG Guys Fast Forward. And we're also proud to be sponsors of Next Stop, formerly known as a network of executive women whose mission is to advance all women in business and to promote gender equality in the workplace. We're giving out 50 memberships to the organization. If your company is not a sponsor or you're a female founder, please get in touch with us at contact at cpgguys.com. Again, that email address is contact at cpgguys.com. And uh, of course, the digital liner notes of this episode will contain hyperlinks to our website, that's cpgguys.com, the other collective podcast that I briefly mentioned, a LinkedIn page, and a landing page on NextUp's site. Did you know, Brian, we actually have a landing page on NextUp's website. So, Brian, are you ready to rumble? 
Yes, I am ready to rumble. I've occasionally listened to the podcast, so I knew that. So, <laughs> Of course, I can't say, let's get ready to rumble like the WWF because I have a radio face. I don't have the radio voice. You just did, though. What's that? <laughs> you just did. <laughs> yeah, it was very average, though. I, I think it's an average call. Retail media is, of course, increasingly clearly being recognized as media. Content is yesterday's digital capability. User experience continues to be everything from search to pickup and home delivery. What we now know is a majority of shopping is digitally influenced and then there's surrounds on media, online, offline, offsite, static. And to decompose all of this, one that we've been waiting, as he would say himself, for 18 months is a blockbuster guest. And he's going to help us understand the latest in the digital commerce world. None other than our friend, Mr. Vince Jones, the Senior Vice President and Head of Global E-Commerce at my alma mater, PepsiCo. Join us in welcoming to the show, Vince Jones. Prior to that, he comes with a rich experience in digital leadership and, believe it or not, even operations, which I'm sure to ask him a question about. Vince, I've been waiting forever for this one. Welcome to the show. Well, fantastic. So excited to be here and thank you for having me. Yeah, I think we've, uh, I know at least a year, maybe 18 months, we've been trying to make this happen. So couldn't be more excited to be here. Thank you, Vince. Before we start the questions we've prepared for you, though, could you take a minute to give us the high level goal of your role? What do you lead for PepsiCo in this e-commerce leadership role? You bet. So, so I'm uh, so I'm the head of global uh, e-commerce for PepsiCo. Uh, and Sri, I know you back when you were at PepsiCo, you were a part of the very early days of uh, the e-commerce group there, and it's probably changed a lot since then. But it's been an amazing growth story. So, really, today there are two key components, uh, uh, you know, to how we are organized with our U.S. business uh, and then the global business. So let me talk about the U.S. front quickly. So we have, you know, a team that is really hands-on running the retail e-commerce business for PepsiCo. And when I say retail e-commerce business, I'm talking about basically any uh, consumer order placed on a digital storefront of any retailer purchasing PepsiCo products, of course. Uh, We're organized similar to how you would think an e-commerce retailer or a tech company would be organized. We have a cross-functional team with technology, data, sales, marketing, supply chain strategy. And that team together really wakes up every day thinking about how to win the consumer at this digital point of choice. Very similar to how in the brick and mortar world, the PepsiCo frontline teams focus on winning space in the stores. And then on the global front, I hate to use the word, but we sort of act act like a, a, a COE there where we provide connectivity across the markets for all of the practitioners. We help build playbooks from best practices from all the different markets, lift and shift capabilities, and then help overall with uh, with talent and people development. And Vince, I do remember it very fondly. We started this journey back at PepsiCo in January 2013. It was a team of three, Brian Newman, myself, and Bhavan, who, of course, is on the Walmart business now for beverages, I believe. And then Lisa Walsh eventually did uh, take leadership from Brian. And that's how the journey got started. It's fascinating to see all the success you've had at PepsiCo. Congratulations on all the leadership you provide as well. For our audience, we'll include links to Vince's LinkedIn profile, PepsiCo Media's LinkedIn page, and your website in the digital liner notes of this podcast episode. So let me kick it off, Vince, with our usual first question for our guest, which is about your career. Your career journey after Stanford has been in operations first, as I mentioned, then the CEO of eBags before leading the digital journey at PepsiCo, especially as COVID shaped. So you've gone through the tremendous and significant shaping of e-commerce in the last three years, especially in the food and web business. 
You've created long-lasting legacies, not just for PepsiCo, but for the industry. Take us through the years from Stanford, and uh, what's your advice for someone early in their career wanting to replicate what you've done, which is be an e-commerce leader that can write a legacy in the CPG industry and retail? Well, fantastic. Yeah, happy to happy to talk about that. I guess I guess if I start, if I look at my entire career and I sort of thought of it as a as a three-legged stool, you know, really sort of retail and e-commerce, technology and operations. So at any given point, I've been doing two, if not all three uh, of those things. So I mean, I'm actually going to go back just super quickly. I actually started my retail career uh, in, in high school working at Walmart. So I worked at what was Walmart store number 81 was my hometown store. And then ultimately in uh, store 359, literally started that uh, in high school, $4 an hour uh, and sort of learned everything you could possibly imagine in a store and then did tech and process consulting out of undergrad and honestly learned pretty quickly that I was a terrible software developer, but I did have a bit of a knack for sort of translating functional expertise into uh, tech solutions and helping design them. So uh, then coming out of a, uh, yeah, coming out of business school and it's almost pains me to think about it because it was almost exactly 23 years ago right now that I uh, started up at walmart.com, had the opportunity to be really a part of the early team there uh, and launch that sort of initial version of walmart.com. Obviously, it's gone through a tremendous change since then. I was there for uh, about five and a half years and real, built really the, the first backend infrastructure and the team and the process and all the technology for that uh, for that business and sort of went from uh, zero to uh, through the first billion there, I'd say. Did a, uh, did a tech startup and then you mentioned ran eBags, which is a fantastic uh, experience. And then prior to coming to PepsiCo, I uh, was at about a $2 billion uh, direct-to-consumer retailer that was actually a roll-up of a bunch of old catalogers that we were converting into e-commerce businesses and was the COO chief digital officer there. So I really feel like I can, I've can i seen uh, almost anything good or bad you could imagine in an e-commerce environment over that time. And then obviously the last five and a half years at, at PepsiCo have just been a phenomenal experience. And we've seen that business, as I mentioned, has grown 10x from when I joined in 2017 until now. And so it's been an amazing experience. In terms of, you know, in terms of advice, you know, I don't, I don't typically give a lot, but I did take a little time to think through it and, and I try to listen more. But I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, the pace of change in this industry is still very high. And so, you know, flexibility and learning to be adaptable and be flexible and evolve as <clears throat> that change happens is certainly something that's critical. I think, you know, the next thing I would say uh, is never lose sight of the consumer. I think particularly in the CPG space where you have the retailer sometimes being closer to the consumer, it can be a, it can be easy to lose sight of that consumer, but I think it's critical. And also, you know, sort of end-to-end thinking uh, as you're uh, thinking about building those solutions for the consumer, it's easy to get caught up in our silos sometime. And, you know, then I would also encourage everyone to, you know, if you, if you haven't had the experience, seek out a position where you have the opportunity to build a technology or a new solution uh, to solve a problem for either a business or for, for a consumer that's something that doesn't exist. I think those skills uh, of being able to translate that and build those solutions are fantastic. Also, you know, always ask questions uh, as, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot to learn, a lot to change, and hopefully do that from a diverse set of perspectives. And then finally, you know, regardless of your role in the organization, learn the P&L, learn the drivers of the P&L, and that will serve you well uh, in uh, in any part of your business as you're able to make sure that you're tying back all of your actions to something that's driving a good business outcome. That's uh, that's excellent for, uh, for for somebody who doesn't give advice a lot. That was excellent advice. So um, so well done. Maybe. <laughs> wait, wait, Brian, he didn't say anything about roles and operations. <laughs> 
Over to you, Brian. I'm just kidding. <laughs> those, those skills are very valuable, no doubt about it. Yep, yep. Shri just, Shri just wants to talk about his days riding the truck, so that's uh, that's all that's all he's trying to do. So, uh, so, um, so yeah. So, um, all right. Well, so let's uh, let's take a look at sort of the the current state of the world today, and uh, you know, our one of one of our favorite topics on this podcast, if you've ever listened to any of it. Um, is the world of retail media. So my question is kind of two parts. One, do you think retail media is one of the most, most important spaces? And if uh, in the CPG retail world, uh, and if so, why? So one, I, I absolutely think it's, uh, I, I, I think it's very important. Uh, I think it continues to expand and grow. Uh, I think obviously, you know, it sort of uniquely has this ability to generate value on both sides of the CPG and uh, retailer partnership. And I'll talk a little bit, you know, with our e-com team. So going back to, you're really starting with Amazon. We've had a dedicated team focus, internal capabilities, really supporting retail media since 2016. Uh, and that's obviously grown and expanded over the years. But uh, our in-house uh, marketing platform today, we use across seven global markets and many of those retail media networks we connect via API. This gives us, you know, through uh, the retail media network, network and some of those connections gives us access to consumer shopper, shopper data uh, and visibility and really this ability to act like first party marketers in a way that was previously much more difficult for a CPG. And so we actually bring in a lot of retail experience and digital experience into our team. Uh, and so, for example, you know, things like closed loop measurement, where we're able to get really granular, understand like what audiences, what ad creative, what ad placements are driving the strongest return, the strongest profitability across all of our brands in the entire portfolio. And so, you know, obviously that gives us the ability to help really drive the business and drive the right return. And so that's value for us. Clearly on the retailer side, you know, it's additional revenue for them, uh, gives them a chance to boost their margin and, and also, you know, ways that they can uh, ask in participation from the different CPGs to continue driving that. So I do see value there on both sides and, and think it will continue to be important. And Vince, clearly retail media is something that's shaped itself over the last three years for sure. And I still go back to the days of working with Amazon ads when it was the Amazon media group and something else before that. But the other thing that's of course happened over, I would say the last three years, three to five years in the grocery world is e-commerce has become sticky and it's really become an omni-channel world. So how has this matured over the five, last five years in the very specifically food and beverage grocery world? And then there's so many things one can do in the digital space. I know many brands are still playing catch up out there, but y'all are one of the market leaders in the space. What is sticky and what should people really focus on if they've already gotten left behind? So uh, absolutely. So one, as you said, over the last five years, and we've all lived this together, especially during COVID, consumer adoption of e-commerce and food and beverage uh, expanded significantly. So, and, and some of our uh, internal insights show that basically over 70% of consumers in the U.S. today have tried purchasing grocery at this point online. And also some of the folks that adopted in COVID, we see that you know nearly 90% of them say they're going to continue using e-commerce in some form, you know, maybe not as much as they were in COVID, but sort of like they came for the safety and uh, now they're sticking around for the convenience uh, and also for other things like value that we'll, that we'll talk about a little bit. But I think really, you know, Omni shopping is growing rapidly. Uh, you know, many consumers are shopping across these modalities. 
it does appear to be sticky across modalities. And so from our perspective, then we have to think about, you know, how we create that right experience for those consumers wherever they choose to shop in the store, uh, on any of the digital platforms in a truly omni-channel fashion. And so I think that's the big, uh, a big thing for us. And so, you know, what I would say is making sure that you do have you know, uh, a lot of focus on that Omni experience. And, uh, you know, at least 20% of the U.S. Uh, people are choosing this Omni experience. I think other things that we're seeing right now in particular really uh, be sticky and drive a lot of value are some of the some of the retail membership programs. Obviously, Amazon Prime, Walmart Plus, Kroger Boost, Instacart Plus, all, all of those programs very much designed to drive consumer loyalty and stickiness. Uh, and deliver value to the uh, to the consumers, and so you see things whether it's you know gas discounts, you know content, etc. We see all of those things uh, uh, being really sticky and delivering value, and and also I think something that I don't know historically that I've necessarily seen or expected as much, but speaking of value. As we've gotten into this inflationary uh, economic environment, we've seen a significant increase in digital engagement from consumers seeking value. That's everything from looking for digital coupons, price comparison, shopping across platforms and the best deal. And so I think it is critical for retailers to demonstrate, sorry, the value online uh, and that it will be critical in winning over the next few years. And so I think those are some of the things that are that are really important. I guess a couple of other things I might say, you know, developing, you know, developing habits with the consumer. We also see one, you know, obviously being in stock is, is always uh, important. Uh, but, but, you know, this use of you know, your past purchases or your order history to drive a lot of uh, future sh- uh, purchases. I mean, we see as much as, you know, 80% of shopping happening from previous purchases. And so in order for that to be effective, though, you obviously have to execute the fundamentals and, and be in stock. And so I think those are a few things that we see that are really important today. Vince, there's a um, there's a lot of talk in the industry about what's sticky, what's not. You address many of them um, directly over here. The one that I'd love to get a quick opinion on is stock. Right, you mentioned it right at the end. Um, the industry will tell me that when stuff is out of stock, e-commerce it hurts the skew and the assortment much worse than when it's in out of stock at the physical shelf. Can you decompose that a little bit? And is it true? Is bust the myth here for us? Uh, our experience is that that is that that is absolutely the case. And so, you know, and there's <clears throat> there's a few different drivers here and I, I can hit on a couple of them. But one, <clears throat> you know, you think about, you know, sort of the, the digital shelf and the way that, you know, the, the shelf is organized by algorithms. And so uh, as part of your algorithm is, you know, sales history. And so when you go out of stock, you can't sell your sales history is going to drop your sales are going to drop therefore that part of that algorithm you have to earn your way back up into that so it's different than obviously in the physical store if we're out of stock and the next day our uh, you know our DSD person comes and gets that shelf fully refilled and beautiful whenever a customer walks by they're going to see that uh, whereas here we have to kind of earn our way back up and so i think that's absolutely critical other other ways that i would say candidly on a lot of subscription programs. So in certain categories, 
we see you know subscription driving a significant amount of uh, of sales and so in order for that program to be successful one for most of them you have to be able to maintain strong in stock levels to to qualify for a subscription program but then also to get that sort of revenue uh, almost it's almost like an annuity stream built you have to have the in stock for that so those are two really top of mind examples of how i see it being uh, being critical and then i guess the last i would say is Going back to the point about um, shopper history, uh, obviously, whenever that consumer is building their basket for the first time or the first two, three or four times, if you're not in stock and not in that algorithm and you lose the chance to get into that initial basket, that obviously uh, hurts you in the future. Whereas if you get in that, that obviously helps you in the future. So those are some of the key drivers I see there. That's uh, that's awesome. We could do a whole podcast just on that. Actually, <laughs> that's like uh, so. Uh, in terms of what that, in terms of what that means for assortment strategy and how you need the, how you need to think about. Maybe we should, Brian. Maybe we should have Vince back just to discuss that. Yes. Well, we can. Uh, I, the, they're, the, the door, door's always open, man. This is great. Um, so um, I'm sure you've got nothing else to do. You know, you're only running global e-commerce for a multi-billion-dollar company. You got to get all kinds of time for. Uh, uh, but I. But uh, so. I, I love this stuff so much, though. I, I'm happy to uh, talk about it. This is kind of uh, kind of as I mentioned earlier. I have effectively dedicated my uh, entire career to this at this point, so I love it. Cool. Well, let's let's see if we take it in a different direction. I'm not sure if this will make you happier or not, but because uh, I, I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the conversation that we've had so far has been about the relationship that Pepsi has with the with the consumer and with the retailer. Let's talk about now the relationship that Pepsi has to Pepsi. Um, so, in terms of what you're doing in the teams, how do you connect to the the sort of the other arms of Pepsi for, uh, lack of a better term, surround sound amplification of what you're trying to accomplish in the commerce space. Uh, how does how does your e-commerce world tie with marketing and selling? And I'm really curious, personally, on you mentioned before that you know global, you're kind of a COE and you were kind of apologetic about it. And I get I get that just because you know for 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 someone who grew up at Walmart that likes to get stuff done, that's a different way to do it. So uh, so how's that all working? Yeah, as uh, Sri was giving me a hard time, or, or sorry, maybe it was you about not saying anything about operate. So I am at my heart an operator. And so that's why I'm like, I'm getting a little sheepish about being saying that I'm a COE because I am an operator at heart. Uh, so so em em embrace the dark side, Vince. <laughs> uh, so that said, um, you know, yeah, so these, I mean, this is very important. Uh, and, you know, I think one, you know, you have some familiarity with PepsiCo. You know that it's you know it's a large and complex and and you know highly matrix organization. And so, making sure that we're staying connected internally in PepsiCo across you know all of the different functional teams, all the different sectors, all of the different business units helps us really build strong partnerships uh, in with those teams and then with our customers as well, so that we can sort of drive you know total portfolio and total omni-channel growth. Uh, and so there are a few, you know, few things that I guess I could highlight, you know, one, you know, we're talking about marketing, we're talking about retail media networks. It is important that, you know, the marketing teams understand, you know, the priorities of both the brand and the sales team. You know, it's obviously, you know, this performance marketing is directly driving sales. And that's a little bit different than, you know, the traditional brand marketing that PepsiCo does. So retail media networks have given us many capabilities that enable us to reach consumers, build awareness and brand equity, but also directly drive incremental sales through tactics like pay, paid search. So, you know, those for those reasons, you know, we can't operate in a silo and we have to make sure that we're staying connected and understand that. I'd say similarly, 
You know, e-commerce teams work closely with our brick-and-mortar shopper marketing teams to ensure a holistic experience for the consumers. Uh, you know, that consumer, you know, we don't want them to delineate their experience with a brand or retailer based on, you know, a shopping modality. We want that to be a seamless experience for them all the way through. And so it's important that we keep that, you know, e-commerce marketing and the brick-and-mortar shopper marketing connected. And then I would say, you know, we influence the, the commercial agenda uh, to ensure that we've got product innovation, you know, revenue strategies that consider sort of e-commerce and the e-commerce channels at the beginning of the process, not as an afterthought. I think, you know, historically, and we're not perfect at this, but we're getting much better at this. Historically, you know, it would sort of be, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do the product innovation. And then at the end, it would be like, okay, uh, we need to do something for e-com. And we're trying to get much more upfront and much more coordinated with that. And then the last thing I think I would say is, you know, spending a lot of time helping you know, build e-commerce and digital expertise and capability across the broader organization. So working with our learning and development team, uh, building a curriculum that helps accelerate this knowledge base across the entire organization to be truly omni-channel. And then also in making sure that, you know, if you look at the makeup of our team, we're about half, you know, external sort of digital native or e-commerce uh, uh, experts at, from outside of PepsiCo and about half internal. And so making sure that we're helping, you know, talent move into the e-commerce team and then out of the e-commerce team into, into broader PepsiCo to deliver that digital experience is, is something that is uh, important. And Vince, so one of those spaces that I want to come back to, which you talked about the intersection, the matrix, connecting with everybody, et cetera, one of those spaces back to retail media love your the audience would love to hear your opinion or how you have how this works out at pepsico where does retail media actually sit because a lot of models are being explored in the industry is it purely marketing and part of a one media strategy that a brand needs to have is it more selling under a selling team is it a shopper marketing scene that sits in capabilities where is retail media these days so i will tell you for our uh, for the way that we work, it, it is kind of in, in two places. Uh, and so if you think about, you know, sort of the on-site, you know, performance, lower funnel driving performance marketing to a specific outcome on a retailer's site, that lives within the e-commerce team. If you think about, you know, retail media off-site or other things to drive to brick and mortar, you know, that really lives more in the media group and then the DX team. But we coordinate very closely across those groups. Uh, but that said, today it is, you know, sort of, it's sort of broken out into the two different groups based on those specific use cases. A reminder to audience, we're speaking with Vince Jones, general manager, SVP, head of global e-commerce at PepsiCo. And now we go to the second half of this episode. And uh, I am tempted to go to AI. And I'm going to let you decompose it for us, MLL. Are these words real in the omni-channel grocery world? Are they pretenders? And if they're not pretenders and they're real, are you actually using any of these in um, everyday? <clears throat> so first, I think... Let me take a step back and say I, I do, you know, I do think they're real. I'll talk a little bit about our approach. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to talk too much about specific use cases, but I'll try to nibble around the edges of that a little bit. Um, so one, you know, as we think about how we use technology within e-commerce to deliver, you know, these outcomes, we do try to take, as I mentioned earlier, sort of a consumer and a commercial lens to how we think about 
using technology and innovation, building capabilities. And we find this to be like a very effective way to bring in the right innovation opportunities and technology uh, and unlock the opportunities that truly matter, as opposed to you know, just building capabilities for capability's sake. And I know, candidly, uh, early in the e-commerce days, we got accused of that a little bit, but I think we've gotten much better at, at tying these to specific commercial outcomes. So, you know, you talk about these specifically, obviously, you know, chat GPT has driven a lot of buzz, uh, you know, Dolly, people, a lot of buzz. And so you start hearing this entering the common vocabulary, the masses a little bit more. Also, in my 23 years of e-commerce, I can't tell you how many cycles of uh, hot buzzwords I've gone through. Uh, and so sometimes it's hard to figure out what's real and what's not. But I will tell you, uh, <clears throat> you know, what we focus on is less, you know, sort of the specific, you know, capability, but more on, you know, what's going to deliver the right experience for that consumer that, you know, and that consumer doesn't really know whenever they're in that experience, if that's something that was driven by uh, ARML, they don't really care. They just want something that's going to make their life better or be, uh, you know, be a delightful experience for them. So that said, you know, I can give you a few examples here. Um, you know, we have used, you know, so for example, uh, machine learning models to build personalized recommendations for consumers, uh, both on some of our own properties, but also in, in terms of some of our partners. Uh, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, we have a, an in-house uh, tool that we use, our marketing automation platform that connects to all the retail media networks. We actually have put in uh, and we're piloting with one uh, retailer in particular, uh, some uh, models there for optimization of our bids. And we've seen seen very positive early results still early there. I think, you know, then there are other things, you know, back to the operations point, we definitely you know, are using, uh, you know, optimizing things around network, fulfillment path and modality, you know, attributing uh, search, you know, all those sorts of things are things that we're doing. And then a little bit around pricing uh, as well. So uh, that's a quick update there. The one, the only one area that I will, uh, I won't say poke around, but just curious is delivery, home delivery versus online pickup, click and collect, call it what you may, right? Like I have a strong opinion on this one that in the food and bev grocery business, low ASP, average selling price, online pickup, click and collect is the future because it drives margin for both the retailer as well as the brand versus home delivery, which to the day, adds a lot of fees in the ecosystem. How do you feel about that, Vince? So, you know, I think if you, from your perspective of profitability there, you know, obviously uh, it's going to look more profitable for the pickup. I will tell you something that we're seeing um, <clears throat> more of now than we, we have historic. So let me take one step back. This area probably saw the most massive growth in all of the areas as you're both aware when we look back uh, over the uh, last two to three years. So what we're starting to see more is like this this hybrid uh, where it's the customer does a pickup at the store, but then they also are still going into the store. And, and this is something that we're seeing as a, a significant amount of growth in. And so uh, that is interesting for a lot of reasons. One, I think it's clearly still more convenient for the customer because they're probably doing a much smaller in-store shop and they're able to get out uh, more quickly. It's also interesting for us because, you know, um, some of the impulse things that you see in the store uh, come come into play more in that model versus just in the in the pure uh, model. So if I was going to make one bet, I would say that hybrid uh, 
model there where more of it is pickup and then you even see even more folks coming in to do some sort of top off shopping in the stores where I would expect to see a, a, a lot of growth. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't want to declare winners and losers, but I think I do expect to see growth there. Well, and I think we can do, all, we can do a whole episode on this too, because I think the, I think, I think Shri, the, for the U.S., I think that's very true. I think if you look around the world at markets where 80% of your disposable income is, is within 50 miles of one place, home delivery actually makes a lot more economic sense. So if you're, if you're trying to crack the code on e-commerce in Chile and you've got 90% of the GDP is within 50 miles of downtown Santiago, you can do, that's a very, that's a very different conversation. So yeah. Totally, totally agree. And I was 100% U.S. focused with that answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, um, so yeah, so that it's, this is all fascinating stuff. So, and this gets to sort of a broader question, right? (laughs) There's a, there's a lot to know here, right? Like, and it's a lot to know that's unfamiliar to a lot of your leaders. Um, And sometimes it comes wrapped in jargon that, you know, is cover is basically talking about some pretty essential concepts that they would understand if it wasn't coded in a jargon in a in a tasty jargon coding. So um, how are you how are you working, especially with senior leaders, to try to get them to embrace where this is going from it, whether it's demystifying it or teaching or whatever it is. How 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 does that process work from an alignment perspective? Yeah, you bet. I mean, such a yeah, such such an interesting and, and relevant question, and uh, you know, navigating this inside of PepsiCo has has been fascinating, and we have uh, we have great support. But there is no doubt, you know, you think about Pepsi, you know, think about PepsiCo, and and I'll be fully honest. When I joined the company five and a half years ago, I did not have a full appreciation for sort of the scale of the DSD network and field operation and execution powerhouse that is PepsiCo. And it is, I mean, it is a thing of beauty uh, and it's amazing. That said, you know, you know, what we're, you know, what we're doing is a little bit different than that. And so we do find ourselves, you know, spending a lot of time sort of talking about some of the differences uh, and sort of explaining some of those. And we also see, I'll get into this a little bit more in just a second, um, you know, drawing parallels from the, the digital, uh, this is the digital equivalent of the brick and mortar in X, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But let me let me just say one other thing first. Um, what I will tell you, this is uh, probably going off uh, uh, off the record a little bit here. Uh, one of the things that I still can't believe. That's all right. Nobody's listening. That's don't worry. I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of these things that I still can't believe I find myself doing in internal conversations is people coming in and saying, "Oh, e-commerce. That's that's just Amazon, right?" There's nothing else there, right? Uh, you know, uh, or even worse, when they do talk about you talked about the Bopus or the e-grocery, they're like, that just happens, right? The product's on the shelf, so it just happens. Uh, and I have to explain, uh, you know, over a period of time that there's a there's actually a lot uh, that it takes that uh, just because a product sits on a store shelf doesn't automatically uh, make it up to the website. Uh, and so anyway, those are uh, you know those are some examples. So I'll, I'll get back. Uh, uh, you know, I think. What we really want, you know, is is over time, you know, building this appreciation across the PepsiCo leadership that, A, obviously it's not something that just happens, but really it takes a lot of skill, a lot of hard work. But this, you know, 
this marriage of, you know, PepsiCo's, I talked about that strong uh, DSD network and field presence, that muscle combined with, you know, the digital expertise that we can bring. And, and when things go really great is when we get all of those things aligned perfectly and create that end-to-end -end experience. So that's uh, just overall. But but again, let me talk about just a couple of other things. You know, I mentioned this notion of trying to, uh, you know, talk about the e-com equivalent of what's in in uh, uh, in the digital space. So for example, we talk about paid search, you know, and so we try to draw the equivalent to someone and say, this is like having shelf space in a store, you know, so you can think about that. And these are not perfect, but just to give you a flavor of sort of how we think about it, you know, or, you know, display banner ads on site. That's kind of like the equivalent of, of having an end cap, uh, you know, or, or if we just display advertising off the site, that's kind of the equivalent of a circular that's driving traffic into the store. And so we talk about those things, we talk about, you know, the digital shelf and, and drawing parallels to us winning the digital uh, point of choice the same way that we want to win the brick and mortar point of choice. And I think those are all the things, you know, again, a lot of nuance there, uh, but just trying to give you a flavor of how we think about it. But over time, you know, obviously trying to uh, continue both, you know, educating uh, and then partnering on this with the broader organization, because this is clearly, you know, a significant growth driver for the uh, for the company for years to come. Anybody that's ever heard me talk about e-commerce, I've been talking about the endless shelf as stop thinking about it as the ability to sell everything because that doesn't make any sense. And because so much of e-commerce is fulfilled from a store, which has a constrained physical assortment anyway, think about it as a perpetual potential end cap. It's not about what's on the shelf. It's about where it is and when you can sell, right? That's the cool stuff. And yeah, and trying to get people's head around the fact that, you know, display ads are basically digital end caps has been, uh, I'm glad somebody else is on that journey with me. I was, I was feeling lonely. So. We're, we're there. We're there with you. Cool. But guys, if it's already in the physical self-install, Bopis should automatically take care of itself. Why do we even need e-commerce teams, guys? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not our problem. Once it gets to the store, that's the retailer's problem. <laughs> Since we've already gotten to the in-store world, let me jump there for a second, right? So what's clear is even the in-store component of the business that exists in grocery today, it's still largely digitally influenced. It could be on an app, could be on a website, could be on streaming TV, could be on connected TVs, could be on the smartphone, you name it. I'm starting to list off a whole bunch of devices here. But what are those latest in-store digital technologies that connect back to the shopper for the omni-channel journey that I just mentioned here that drive outcomes for the consumer and the brand? And then are there any one or two that come top of mind to you? Yeah, I think there's a couple. So, you know, we talk all the time. Uh, so well, in the e-commerce space, we talk about, you know, removing friction through the, the process or the checkout process. I think, you know, taking that similar mindset to, you know, what are some of these technologies that help remove friction from that in-store experience? And what's the uh, what's the most obvious place to me, at least, to start is checkout lines. Uh, and so I think, you know, Technologies that can help solve that, uh, I, I think, are things that can be really interesting and, and really game changing. I think, uh, you know, so things like, you know, uh, mobile in-store uh, scanning or self-scanning, self shelf-scanning types of things. So Instacart Scan-A-Pay, I think, is a, is a good example. I know there are some others out there, but you know, this ability as a consumer to be able to use your, your phone, your device, whatever the case might be, uh, to sort of scan as you go, you know, get product information, 
or if you're shopping on a specific budget, be able to know exactly how much you're spending, you know, all those types of things as you're building your basket. I think that's great value to the consumer. Then if you add to that, uh, you know, the notion of, you know, not then having to wait in line uh, at the end and be able to go right out. I think those are uh, fantastic uh, types of capabilities that deliver real consumer value and and can be uh, game changing. I guess I would say, you know, similarly, uh, and I think, um, you know, similarly, something like, you know, smart carts, I'm curious to see how these evolve. Uh, and and there's a there's potentially the same value of, uh, you know, being able to skip the line there. Uh, but but. For example, you know, uh, again, I'll come, I'll use an Instacart example. I think their ability to use their carts to think about delivering a very personalized experience for you as you're in that retail environment, or even, you know, helping with discovery of new products. I think those are, again, types of things that that can create real value and great experience and help, you know, add to that retail experience while also removing some of the friction that's in there. And so those are things that I think can be, uh, can be really interesting. Yeah. I, I I agree. I think the the ability to make that technology about the removal of checkout friction less sort of sort of capital intensive and less sort of store altering than the just walk out way that Amazon does it because it just what just walk out's awesome, but it limits so much of what you can do from a merchandising point of view because of how it works. I think the ability to take a more normal store and remove ninety five percent of the friction of it but keep eighty percent of your merchandising uh, that seems like a much better way to solve a problem down the road, but. One one point, Brian, that I wanted to share through my own personal experiences, and I travel the country very often at retail, very often. So I'm continuously testing out click and pick versus delivery. I don't want to say home delivery because on when I'm on the road, I'm not home. But um, I find that the general merchandise outside of food and bev, click and pick, seems to be a much better experience than food and bev because I'm always finding substitutions, delays even after I get to a store, whereas general merchandise, it seems like a well-oiled machine. When I order something, I show up at the store, within five minutes, it comes to my vehicle, which seems to be a some sort of a demarcation between food. Maybe it's the number of items in a trip, the size of the basket, as the case may be. I think it's the number of items in the store, to be honest. Like, if you look at Best Buy, it's got like 20,000 SKUs on a 20,000 square foot store. Supermarket's got 80,000 SKUs on a 40,000 square foot store. So there's more potential for confusion when you've got more stuff crammed in there, I think. But I don't know. Um, anyway, Vince, one last question for you. Uh, we've got to let you get back to uh, this, you know, the, your, your relatively simple day job. Um, so uh, so um, and, and my, my last question usually has something to do with uh, the notion of fast forward, which is the podcast that will move from the imaginary state to real life in the very near future here. Uh, the CPG guys fast forward. But what are you looking specifically to retail media networks? What are some of your predictions about how those are going to evolve over the next couple of years? Yeah. So I think one, I think, you know, as I said earlier, I, I do think they're here to stay. I think we are in this, you know, somewhat of a early stage fragmented growth period where, you know, everyone's, uh, you know, lots of people are trying to have them and more and more retailers are joining the club. And uh, I think one thing I think I would start to see is that we might see, CPG sort of be forced 
to be a little more choiceful on how they make their retail media network investments. And, and that will be driven, you know, whether that's through focused strategies, whether that's through the, you know, having the analytics and the tools to be able to drive the best return. But I think you will see uh, CPGs have to start being a little more uh, choiceful there. But to that end, then I think you'll also see some of the leading retail networks, retail media networks, build more, you know, of these uh, data-backed and ROI-led capabilities uh, that enable sort of closed-loop attribution. So uh, I think that will be important. As I said earlier, you know, the more granular we can get to understand, you know, specific campaigns or specific products and those returns, the easier it is for us to make those investments. Um, You know, I I think another thing, you know, multi-touch attribution uh, and being able to measure that across, do analytics uh, and with cross-media insights. So whether it's search, display, video, you know, I think today you sort of get more last touch attribution. I think seeing more and more of this come to light, I think, again, will be in that spirit of helping us do everything we can to optimize each tactic and the return on that tactic. Um, you know, I guess a couple of other things might be, you know, seeing how, you know, these these commitments or ask and JBPs evolve. Uh, I think, you know, it may become, you know, I think we will may see some changes in, in how those work today. There's, you know, there tends to be a lot of ask for those. And and so I think, again, places where you can drive and prove the return, uh, you might see more funds flowing to that. And then I think the last thing might just be, you know, things around reliability, you know, fraud tracking, all those sorts of things that can really give us, you know, much better visibility and much, much higher confidence in sort of all the analytics that we're doing to drive the return. So the key theme through all of that was continued evolution to make sure that we can, as as CPGs, that we can optimize the dollars that we're putting in here. As you both know, because when we have to go have those internal discussions that we're having earlier, you know, the, the better the return, obviously, and the more granular we can get with that information and going to our internal stakeholders to say, here's why you should make these investments, the better off we'll be. So I think uh, I see a lot uh, of continued driving in, uh, in that space. Excellent. That's great. Let me remind our audience that you can find all our content by going to a web browser and simply typing cpgguys.com. And if you think your company has some thought leadership or you have some thought leadership to contribute to a growing community discussion over here on the CPG Guys, drop us an email at contact at cpgguys.com. Again, that's contact at cpgguys.com. And maybe you too can join us just like Vince on the podcast. Don't forget to drop us a rating because that tells us how we're doing. On the navigation bar at the top of our website, all the way to the right. Thank you to our 20K plus followers on LinkedIn. You shape the show, you decide what the topics are, and we can't thank you enough. Vince, it was a pleasure having you on the show and noodling e-commerce with you. It's always fun every time I get to see you in the industry as well. So thank you for joining us. Fantastic. I uh, I enjoyed it. And yeah, I think we could we could have had multiple episodes there uh, dedicated to a few of those topics. But certainly uh, a pleasure for me to be able to join and uh, talk about uh, something that's a, a clear passion of mine and uh, great to uh, spend time with you. And Brian, do you hear him volunteering to come back for another episode? Because that's what I heard. The street's going street's to hold you to that, Vince. So, uh. <laughs> and Brian, thank you for co-hosting with me today. And now is my favorite moment of the podcast, which is go ahead and summarize what we learned today. Um, yeah, it can't possibly be your favorite moment because the whole I, the best way to summarize this podcast would just be to play the whole thing back. Um, so, because I don't literally don't think there's anything we talked about that wasn't critical. Um, 
I think I really enjoyed the uh, some of the some of the advice that that you had for people early on about you know really expect that the pace of change is going to continue. Don't think that this is temporary. Just anticipate that's going to go on. Staying uh, really staying in and focus on the consumer as well as a variety of other things. You said something around um, around the power of retail media networks allowing Pepsi to act like a first party marketer. I just thought it was a really, really good way to say that. And I think a couple of times in the conversation, you highlighted something which I think is an interesting thing, for lack of a better term, um, between, because everyone says, oh, well, you know, you've got a divide between the store and marketing or whatever, retail and market, sales and marketing. It's like, well, no, there's a hybrid ground there already, which is the people in your world that are responsible for performance marketing who for years have been struggling to have anybody to make sense to anybody. <laughs> it's like, we're doing our stuff here. It's different than what we do from a conventional marketing point of view. And it was disconnected from sales. So I do think that this performance marketing is almost a third force inside of companies that, uh, and they're trying to teach businesses how to harness that at scale. Um, I think is a, is, is a really, is a really big one. I thought all the conversations you had about um, enabling the rest of Pepsi to learn this, um, breaking it down into common, you know, obviously the the whole, you know, the, you know, the ads or digital end cap pieces is a really powerful, a really powerful component piece to that. I thought some of the ideas around chat GPT were really interesting in there um, in terms of the types of content that, I, that can get served up and the way to, because it does seem to make sense that applying that to, relatively low leverage situations in which perfection is not necessary, but where trying to get granular or personal would be way too expensive to do any other way. That just seems like a really nice market spot for that type of technology uh, to solve in the, uh, in the first place. And I think the last, the last pieces that you talked about, about just about the, the importance of the, you know, the fundamental importance of all of this stuff being to remove friction for the shopper and the consumer and to some degree, remove friction from the measurement process in terms of attribution uh, on the branding side and just directionally that was going. But as I said, literally, I could have just repeated back everything you said, but that would make the podcast questions. Thank you, Brian. That was awesome. Thank you, Vince, for joining us. That's a wrap for this episode of the CHPG, guys. See you soon on another episode, of course, right back here on the CPG, guys. Thank you. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.